You're listening to Splendid Chats, recorded live at Fella Union on 13th of January 2013. Hello and welcome to Splendid Chats, the podcast that goes to 11. Please welcome your hosts, Splendid Chaps, both of them, Ben McKenzie and John Richards. Thank you so much for being our first audience at our first episode of Splendid Chaps. The year-long celebration of Doctor Who for the 50th anniversary. Each month we'll be looking at a specific Doctor and a broader theme and, uh, and also the song. Or, or something. Yes, or something. <laughs> There'll be something at the end. We'll have a, a bit of a performance. Um, and today, later on, we'll be joined by the wonderful Geraldine Quinn singing... <laughs> yes. Singing a song of her own composition, Doctor Who's Assistant, which she has specially updated, I will add, for today's performance. Yeah, it's the first one out of 11, John. Out of 11, which is currently 15, yes. I think. The, the it's a bit like a trilogy in five parts. It, it, it really is. We keep adding them. Yeah. Well, I think it's because we keep coming up with ideas for things. So there are going to be 11 main live shows, if you include the two about Tom Baker that will be edited together as a single episode. <laughs> As one, which I personally do. Yeah, so that's, that's going to be 11 main shows, uh, one for each Doctor uh, through to November. And the podcast will come out on the 23rd of each month. And there'll be little other ones that we do in between when we decide that there's a topic we really want to talk about, but we don't think it'll work that well for a, a live show. Or maybe we don't have any guests. Or maybe we're just bored in a cafe. <laughs> Our first show is dedicated to the first Doctor, William Hartnell. Uh, to get more of an idea, though, of the time period we're looking at, Petra, can you throw the fast return switch? Today we're going back to the period of 1963 to 1966, a time when the Beatles ruled the earth. November 22nd, 1963, US President John F. Kennedy is killed by an assassin's bullet in Dealey Plaza, Dallas. The next day, Doctor Who starts. Coincidence? Yes. <laughs> Doctor Who starred William Russell, famous from the adventures of Sir Lancelot, as Ian, a time-travelling schoolteacher who really knew how to fill out a cardigan. His co-stars included Carol Ann Ford as That Strange Girl, Jacqueline Hill as Captain Beehive, and an, and an odd fellow named William Hartnell, who claimed the show was so good it would last for five years. What a dreamer. But what other less important things were going on at the time? The biggest movies of the period included Dr. Zhivago, Mary Poppins, The Sound of Music, Thunderball and Goldfinger. Proving that what audiences really wanted were epic spy musicals with Julie Andrews in them. In music, the popular bands liked to be definitive, including The Beatles, The Rolling Stones, The Bachelors, The Searchers, The Seekers... The Supremes, The Animals, The Kinks, The Honeycombs, The Roy Orbison, The Scylla Black, and The Sandy Shore. Betty Friedan's book The Feminine Mystique was released, and second wave feminism gets underway. As the Hartnell era comes to a close, Homicide and Skippy the Bush Kangaroo are delighting Australian TV viewers, and Prime Minister Harold Holt is sending more Australian troops into Vietnam, declaring us to be all the way with LBJ. LBJ being a cricketing term from the period. <laughs> from JFK to Harold Holt... Hmm. John, um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I should bring this up on air, but 
I don't know that we can entirely trust Petra's information. I, I, look, Petra might not be trusted on all things, but I'm sure she'd be entrusted to introduce our first guest. Yes. I'll give it a go. Our first splendid chap is one half of the film discussion team, The Bazura Project, who haunted Channel 31 for years before having their own star-studded show on the ABC. He writes about film for publications including Ain't It Cool, Filming, Inside Film and Encore magazine, and can also be heard on his own podcast, Hell is for Hyphenates. Bobcat Goldthwaite once said he was better looking than Peter Jackson. He's Lee Zachariah! Did Bobcat Goldthwait really say that? He really did. Uh, how did that come up? Uh, well, I was introducing him during, a, during an evening and uh, he said, thank you, Peter Jackson, which got a big laugh from the audience and then took me aside afterwards and said, I, I actually think you're better looking than Peter Jackson, but I, I, I don't want to sound like a suck-up. <laughs> So what That's you're saying, a flawless Bobcat Goldthwait, by the way. Yeah, so, so what you're saying is that this quote that you've got, that we found, mm. that we could use in your introduction, he didn't actually say in public. No. He just said it to you. <laughs> just said it to me. With look, no witnesses. I'm embarrassed. I didn't think anyone would ever see it when I put it as my Twitter bio. Um, <laughs> so I, it's just a private moment. So, Lee, tell us about Doctor Who. Explain yourself. What is it about Doctor Who that, that first drew you in? That's a... That's a, a deeply psychological, historical question that goes back to, uh, I don't know. But uh, I, I know when I was first hooked, it was uh, seeing repeats of the Ark in space and Pyramids of Mars when I was a kid, and then seeing Sylvester McCoy in a new run episode and getting hooked again, and then they repeated um, Peter Davison episodes when I was a bit older. So it was kind of a... Uh, it took three strikes to really hook me in, and, yeah, I was gone after that. Who is... We have to ask, who is your favourite Doctor? Honestly, it's the one I'm watching at the time. <laughs> it's, it's generally... So what you're saying is, right now, I'm your favourite Doctor. <laughs> uh, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> You really, really are. Oh, actually, look, look this, is, this is probably also a, an interesting time to point this out. Now, um, you came in, Ben, in this quite wonderful T-shirt today. I did. Today, I, which I, is... it's, it's the only Doctor Who T-shirt I own that has a 60s reference in it. But, um... curiously, Lee then showed up... <laughs> For, for the listener, uh, Lee is wearing the same T-shirt. Which is, which is a T-shirt of silhouetted uh, doctors walking across a zebra crossing, uh, Abbey Road style, now, out cl- of a TARDIS. Clearly there was a cat fight. Drinks were thrown. Yeah. Did you know if, uh, in the White House, if there's a party and the First Lady is wearing the same frock as the guests, it's the First Lady who changes? Because she lives there, I guess, so it's that, easier. Yeah. But she, <laughs> she doesn't have to go anywhere. She just goes in another but room. But she pops upstairs, apparently. That explains why I've never seen her in a Doctor Who t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uncanny. Okay. Which, the point I'm just making is that Ben should have changed. But uh, <laughs> let's perhaps bring on our second guest. Our next splendid chap is co-host of Triple R's Livewire and is one of the only people in Melbourne currently not in a band. <laughs> so if you miss seeing her gigs in the other tough. She owns an ever-expanding range of Doctor Who-themed T-shirts. She's Nerida Haycock. Uh, I I will say for the listeners, I dig your shirt, which I know someone else in the crowd is wearing. Again, we've got to double up. (laughs) (laughs) It had to happen, didn't it? But but it's an excellent one, so I don't mind seeing it twice. How are you, Nerida? (laughs) I'm very well, thank you, Ben. How are you? Uh, Excellent, excellent. Uh, Now, you've come to join us today uh, as a fan. Um, why don't you tell us about how you got into Doctor Who? Well, when I was younger, my f- first Doctor was uh, John Pertwee. 
And um, I actually had nightmares about the Auton episodes and the Master mm-hmm. uh, as well. And um, Is that recently? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Kept watching it through uh, Tom Baker and a bit of Peter Davidson and then Davidson and then gave up. And then, <laughs> well, you know, got older, didn't care so much. And, yeah. um, and then with the announcement of the uh, revamping of the series and the ABC put it um, back on television and started from the beginning... Um, six o'clock time slot. Favourite Doctor? A pretty big fan of Matt Smith and will always be a big fan of um, John Pertwee because who can turn down the velvet? <laughs> really shirts. Let's carry on, I think, to our final guest, which I know we're all, we're all very excited to meet, Petra. Our final splendid chap trained at the Belfast College of Art before becoming a costume maker with the Royal Shakespeare Company and the National Theatre. She moved to BBC Television as a costume designer in 1964, working on drama and light entertainment productions, including six Doctor Who stories. Moving to Australia in 1968, she became a lecturer in costume, fashion and textiles, as well as being costume designer for the feature film Warm Nights on a Slow Moving Train and the mini-series Simone de Beauvoir's Babies. We like to watch Doctor Who... She prefers to make it. Please welcome Alexandra Tynan. What I'd like to know is where did you get all that information about my past? (laughs) (laughs) I think we also didn't, of course, mention in that thing, uh, that little introduction, is that you, of course, designed these little fellas down here. The Cybermen are actually you were the person who went, I know what, handles. That's what they need. (laughs) Well, I, I ought to give you a lead-up story to that. Um, do you want me to talk about that or, yeah, or sure, Bill Hartnell? Sure. <laughs> I've just got to fill you in. I, the last thing I ever wanted to do was work, work on Doctor Who. Um, <laughs> because, <laughs> because I shared an office with Daphne Dare, who at that time was the designer. And she was a very, very talented, very clever designer, far better than, than, than me. Um, and I used to hear her talking on the telephone to the production office and there'd be dramas and things happening and da 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 and I said to her um, oh god I'm so glad I don't work on that show (laughs) (laughs) I would absolutely hate it and I'd go back to light entertainment and some, you know a bit of drama or something and then one day one fateful day um, the uh, the the, the member of staff who organised the rosters for what everybody was going to do walked into our office and she said, Daphne, I'm taking you off Doctor Who and I'm going to put you on, Sandra. And, and I was absolutely speechless because it was the last thing that I ever wanted. Anyway, I had no interest in science fiction, wasn't the slightest bit sort of drawn to the whole thing at all. But um, having met Kit Peddler, Dr. Kit Peddler, who was the, the, the think tank behind the Cybermen, and talk to him and and uh, and with one thing and another and a bit more information, I realized that this maybe might be quite a good challenge um, and I really didn 't know where to start with a design um, and one gets pushed into these things when there 's a meeting at two o 'clock on the fourth floor, and you have to be there with a design <laughs> in your hand, and the clock is ticking, and so I just did a something on a piece of paper. And, and that was it. So that's the, 
the quick story about the Cybermen. So uh, do you remember any of the kind of inspiration or was it was really just that? Oh, just off, oh inspiration didn't enter into it. <laughs> <laughs> it was just get the bloody thing done and, you know. Because the thing that fascinates me is that the, the handles is like genuinely, I think, a sort of design icon of the 20th century. It's a, it's a wow. thing that still exists now. <laughs> yes, you know, 50 years yeah. later, the show is still yeah. using your design, more well, or less. more or less. You it's know. a lot better now. <laughs> but, but, but like, you know, silhouette is clearly what it is. Also, Kylie Minogue, I think, in one of her concerts had her backing dancers dressed as Cybermen. Really? One, yeah. She didn't tell so, me. So you've dressed Kylie Minogue. <laughs> And I think it's, it's probably just surprising to hear you kind of say that it was such an off-the-cuff kind of thought. Yeah, I suppose it was. I think if it had been a completely different sort of production, it, I would have had a... My mind would have been in a, a whole different, you know, place. Um, but And it was lovely when we came to do period productions because then, I, you know, with Deborah Watling and, and those kind of things, it was that was terrific for me because that was really my scene. But... But I look back on it now and I think there are things that happen in your life where you don't realise that way down the track these things are going to follow you for decade (laughs) after decade after decade. And those Cybermen, somebody called me Cyber Mum once. (laughs) (laughs) And I think I should have that on my tombstone. (laughs) Then it would be the tomb of the Cybermum. Oh. <laughs> don't applaud that! <laughs> I don't think they're applauding the joke as how quickly I zinged it out there. <laughs> I was really... I, I, was quite, I, I was rereading this uh, book, which um, is Cybermen, written by David Banks, who played the cyber leader in a lot of the 80s stories. And there's a great, there's a lot, great interview with you in here, and, and some of the original design sketches. But one of the things that struck me is like a lot of those early descriptions. What it said in the script was clearly impossible to achieve on the budget that the BBC had at the time, because he wanted like transparent robotic arm with a normal hand at the end of it. I'm like, I don't even know how you'd do that now without CGI. Uh, and and the design that you came up with, which is it's quite different from the original description. It's just so effective. Like, I, I really like the Tenth Planet Cybermen. Well, the thing about that costume was it was a terrific way to lose weight. <laughs> <laughs> because the outer layer of it, I mean, I was so silly, I was so silly. And I look at it now and I think, what a load of rubbish. But, but it was, the outer layer was, was plastic. And, and I think I was so nervous about the whole thing that I didn't really think through about artist comfort (laughs) so those poor guys in that first day we shot at Ealing you know um, they were they were wonderful because they were in such agony with my stuff and all I could do was say I'm so sorry I'm so sorry here's another bit of sticky tape to hold that bit together (laughs) (laughs) and I did feel very guilty and I but I still look at them and think we, well, we only had Tuppence Hapney to, you know, which is about five cents um, <laughs> um, to, to, do, to do the costumes. I mean, that's a silly thing to say, but there was hardly any money. And it was only when I came to do Mark II that we had more, more cash in the bank. I wanted to ask about that because you've had the interesting experience of being able to, to do the costume twice. And in fact, if we can... So we've got these little cybermen here. The first one, the Tenth Planet one, is, is this gentleman who has human hands and a sort of fabric face there. Yeah. Um, the second one is, is a more kind of sleek 
sort of robotic figure. It's quite a change in mm. design. So what were you thinking? Well, the first, the first one, actually, you had to remember that they were still partially human. And so that's why their hands were... They, they had their own hands and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but with the second one, of course, there was more money... Um, but that that thing on the chest, the box looked as if it was sort of some kind of strange musical instrument. <laughs> um, uh, but the the tubing that was down the the arms and the legs was in fact vacuum cleaner tubing. <laughs> and in those days, um, there weren't the fabrics, of course, that we have now. And I used um, a vinyl for the for the suit, which had a fabric backing on it, which made which was a very new thing at that time, and it meant that it was easy f- easier for them to sew when they were making the costumes, um, and they had the little rubber boots sprayed silver, and you know they had sort of glove like things with just fewer fingers, and 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 they had the what do you call them on the headpiece? I got handles, but yeah. handles, yeah. <laughs> So they're easy for storage. But, <laughs> but, no, but I was curious, though, because a lot of people wouldn't want to necessarily uh, revisit their work and change it that much. But were you, did you welcome the idea of doing a completely new design or were you annoyed going, oh, I did them last year, just bring them out again? I, no, I think I, mean, I was glad that we had, we had more cash. And I mean that you know, quite, quite sincerely. It, it just made things life an awful lot easier. And, and I knew what the hiccups were with, with Mark One, so I was able to, to sort of change things. So, A, they were more comfortable, but they still lost lots of weight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, it's a simpler design, really. Mm-hmm. But I think there were other designs that came after me which were absolutely superb, really, really good. I don't think they've all worked, but one or two of them were fabulous. But they are all clearly your design. That's what I mean, though, especially that, that Mark II version. That's, and, in fact, I think the new series is returning even more to the Mark II uh-huh. version as before. We're talking about authority in a little bit, though. I was wondering, can you give us an idea of just how did working at the BBC work in those days? Because it was a full-time job, wasn't it? it was oh, like yes. You just well, you're on staff. You're on staff. And, um, I mean, you got four weeks' holiday and you got overtime and you got Booper paying your health thing. <laughs> Um, but um, you didn't really have an awful lot of say in what you were going to do. As I said, you were, you, there was a roster and you were told what you were going to be working on. And, and the marvellous thing about it was in the 60s, the BBC, before they got really conscious about money spending and budget and that awful word, they actually brought in a huge amount of young talent, um, especially in drama. And many of the people who were writing scripts and who were directing were very, very fresh, very young, had fantastic ideas, and, and many of them went on to be really famous and are still still working. Um, the, pr- the procedure we went through was very much the same as it is today. There wasn't an awful lot of difference, but um, we, worked, we, we didn't do much filming at BBC Television Centre. Doctor Who was usually filmed... Um, or recorded, rather, every Saturday down at Lime Grove Studios near the river at Hammersmith. Um, it was a very exciting place to be in the 60s, the BBC. It was absolutely amazing. And then it started to get... I left because I... Well, one of the reasons why I left was because I... I didn't like the way it was headed with the sort of... 
the money thing and the paperwork and I mean I know it's a million times worse now but but it was it was starting to spoil that that lovely clarity of of free and freedom you know I think she sounds because I always wanted it to be like Mad Men, you know, to be a sort of like a or, or like a really conservative place to work. But it sounds from your point of view that it, that it wasn't. It, Not it in was... the '60s, mm-hmm. no. And and I, <laughs> I, I watched a little bit of that first series of The Hour, and I couldn't bear it because it really wasn't like what how I'd remembered things at all. Um, but yeah, it was it was a marvelous experience, and because we worked in light entertainment, drama, science fiction sport every kind of thing where costumes were needed for something or another you you got experience in working with everything so you didn't just specialize yeah, it's interesting you say that the, the commercial aspect creeping into the bbc was what pushed you away because if you look at the media at the time a lot of the newspapers particularly when they're writing about doctor who were really complaining about that they were starting to complain about oh you know they keep putting the daleks in because that makes them money because mm-hmm. 12 million people watch it when the daleks are in it and only 7 million people watch it when they're not and they're getting you know 5% of the wholesale price on all of these 60 different licenses yeah. for dalek toys yeah. and they were really scathing about it at the mm-hmm. time so it clearly was not just an internal thing that people were worried no, about. No. Speaking of money, too, I presume you got nothing from me purchasing these. Absolutely not a brass <laughs> not, not, a, not a penny. Nothing. No nothing, royalties. Nothing. Um, I was in London a few years ago, and my younger son, who's a great Who fan, um, we went into the BBC shop, and they had brought out a whole series of Doctor Who figurines and there was a, a little one of the first Cyberman and Pierce said, Mum, you've got to buy that. And, and I said, oh, yes, I will. And he said, and for God's sake, sign it, then you can sell it and make some money. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's not going to get any better than that. Let's... <laughs> <laughs> Might be time to talk about the man I, of the hour, I, so to speak. I, I think it probably is. Petra, could you give us a little bit of background on who we've come to talk about today? That, of course. William Hartnell was born on January the 8th, 1908, a birthday he shares with David Bowie, give or take 39 years. <laughs> he was born in London, an only child of a single mother, and he had a surprisingly Dickensian upbringing. He started working as a stagehand in the theatre at the age of 17 and in 1932 he made his film debut in Say It With Music. He would go on to appear in over 60 films, including I'm an Explosive, They Drive By Night, Brighton Rock and The Mouse That Roared. A film he does not appear in is Noel Coward's In Which We Serve. Arriving late on the first day of shooting, Coward berated him for being unprofessional, made him apologise to the rest of the cast and then fired him. His role was played by the first assistant director. He fought in World War II as part of the tank corps, but was discharged for medical reasons. He started his film career in comedy roles, but soon became typecast as heavies, thugs and authority figures, including 1958's gritty classic, Carry On, Sergeant. He gave a highly acclaimed performance in 1963's This Sporting Life, which led to Verity Lambert offering him the lead in Doctor Who. He apparently turned the role down and had to be talked into it by Lambert and director Warris Hussain. One of Hartnell's distinctive traits as the Doctor were his idiosyncratic line readings. Much debate continues as to whether these were scripted, ad-libs or accidents. But some of our favourites include two burnt cinders floating around in Spain and 
anti radiation gloves and the glorious stabilizers matron. Some have claimed he was difficult to work with, and it appears his deteriorating health and poor relations with the new production team led to him leaving the show in 1966. He died on the 23rd of April 1975, aged 67. In 1996, his granddaughter Jessica Carney published a biography, Who's There? The Life and Career of William Hartnell. Thank you. Thank you, William Hartnell. He's a, very, he's a very interesting figure. I, you know, the thing that struck me, one of the facts that uh, we looked up about William Hartnell that I thought was weirdest is that we all think of him as the old man doctor. But when he started playing the part, he was only 55. He was actually aged up. Like The wig was added to, to give him this more sort of Victorian, Edwardian gent look. Yeah. And I realised I think I'd always underestimated him as an actor, especially watching Unearthly Child, the first story he's in. But one of the things that fascinated me about was that all the things you would list as being Doctor Who... Like, if you're going to say, yeah, what's Doctor Who about? And you go, well, it's about this guy. He's a time lord. He's got two hearts. He can regenerate. He you know, comes from a planet called Gallifrey. He likes N- to fight evil. No, yeah, none of that is actually in the original show. Like, none of that. Not even the whole fighting evil thing. He spends the first, you know, uh, sort of few stories being driven by quite selfish motives. Yeah. Uh, Justin Hamilton said it would be like calling Lost in Space Dr. Smith. Yeah, because yeah. he in the first few stories, it's not even clear that he's meant to be the lead. It's much more Ian's show because he does all the things that a traditional hero adventurer does. You know, he runs around punching bad guys and saving the women in the show, and the Doctor sort of sits there going, "Yes, yes, well done, good man." But 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 he's still brilliant. He's still like, oh, he's yeah, he wanders in, and you go, "You're really interesting." Uh, so what did you guys going back think of it? Watching these stories now, I thought it was really interesting watching the. Um, uh, second episode, which was um, what's that? The Cave what of is, Skulls. Yeah, Cave of the Skulls. Yeah, yeah. With the, yeah. Uh, and and that story, the that uh, from the cavemen. Um, Doctor Who and an exciting adventure with the cavemen. Yeah, that's, that's right. <laughs> because it very much remo- it, it, you're talking about how the character developed it, uh, you know, and what didn't start out as as we now consider the Doctor to be. In that first in that first story, to me, it was like watching the very first season of Blackadder. Yes. Where he's he's just this he's wimpy he's conniving he's um, yeah he just totally totally um, different to how he is now. I mean, even the fact that he kidnaps his first companions. Well, yeah, he's he doesn't just genu- kidnap them. He electrically shocks them till they're <laughs> unconscious, which is incredibly dangerous. <laughs> then kidnaps them. Then kidnaps them. Yeah. Just, I know. I was, just, I was fascinated. I think I had kind of forgotten. Because we, we always watch those stories, I think, in a lens now of what we think Doctor Who is. So we go back to them going, well, this is just the Doctor Who that wasn't very good before it went into colour and, you know, things got better. And I was just fascinated to watch him in particular. Although I do find, I found his acting seemed to vary quite wildly. It does, yeah. From episode to episode. Because one of my favourite ones that I went back and watched uh, was The Gunfighters. And he's great in that. And if you haven't seen it, it's, it's, it's a comedy, basically in which the TARDIS crew show up at the OK Corral just before there's the shootout between Wyatt Earp and, you know, the Clantons. And, and you're like, oh, this is... What? And, <laughs> and I, I, it's clearly the inspiration for Back to the Future Part 3 because Peter Purves as Stephen finds out they're in the Wild West and goes, I've always wanted to go to the Wild West. He goes back in the TARDIS and he comes out wearing, you know, like a, a really over-the-top, clearly, if it was in colour, probably pink and green like cowboy outfit with tassels. Of, yeah. And goes, yeah, I'm like the fastest gun in the West. And drops his gun on the ground. You're like, this is Marty McFly. But... <laughs> 
But the doctor then introduces him as being Stephen Regret. Steve Regret. Steve Regret. A singer. A singer, yeah. And he's actually, hey, it's an awesome name. (laughs) But but it's it's funny, that episode struck me as being one that you could make now. Like, Rory could easily be the guy who ends up having to sing in this saloon as Rory Regret. And it's a bit like Sliders as well, which seems like an odd thing to say, but a lot of the time the motivation for the crew to get involved is just that they want to get the TARDIS key back so they can leave. Or they want to get back into the TARDIS, but there's something preventing them. But they, you know, they're not actually interested in saving anybody's life. Like in the Keys of Marinus, which is a pretty dodgy story in itself, but they, they turn up and the guy asks for their help. And the scene ends with him asking for their help. And then it cuts to them walking back to the TARDIS going, it's a shame, I guess he'll have to find someone else. <laughs> And they only help because he blackmails them. He puts a force field around the TARDIS. They're like, we can't get in. I guess we'll have to do what he says rather than just going back up there and thumping him, which they could have done. But, but it's also really interesting that because I noticed in, in The Tenth Planet and at least one of the other ones I was watching and in Doctor Who and Exciting Adventure with the Cavemen, if, if the TARDIS crew hadn't shown up, nothing different would have occurred. <laughs> like, like they genuinely do not influence the story. Yeah. Um, in a bit fact, like Christopher Eccleston's era. Well, in, in, in The Tenth Planet, he's there going... We just, we just have to do nothing. We have to, and, and in fact, you can make an argument for Tenth Planet if you want that he needs to be there to stall other people to make sure nothing happens, like so that screw it up, basically. Yeah, yeah. but but it is fascinating to think that it really is about some people lost in time and space who are struggling to yeah. you know to get out of it. You never know where they're going to be, which is is uh, it's quite an interesting like it's such a contrast to the latest stories where they go places for reasons until they invent a reason why they can't go places for reasons. Yeah, in the seventies. <laughs> But what, what about um, the rest of you? What other stories have you been watching or thoughts have you had? Well, uh, unlike that horrible uh, Keys of Marinus story you mentioned, one of my favourites of the year is probably Keys of Marinus. <laughs> um, it does something... You know, one of the things that kind of bothers me a little about Doctor Who and, if I'm specific, every science fiction TV show ever made, is the way they go, oh, this planet, this is like... And then they describe... They, they talk about it the way you would talk about a suburb in a period of, like, five years. I call that George Lucas syndrome. And in Marinus, it's like each episode is a different country. And one of the characters actually says, oh, that wouldn't happen in this country. And you're like, country? How much is going on in this planet? Tell me more. Um, so that's, that's one of the reasons I, I, love, I love Marinus more than, more than any of the others. But I, I think what you were saying about um, the first Doctor there being so much that we don't think of when it comes to Doctor Who is that they were really finding their feet. They didn't know what the show was. I mean, they, they didn't have any... They were trying to figure out what the rules were. And one of the rules they said was no bug-eyed monsters, and they broke that in Episode 5. Thank God. I don't know, Hartnell is, is so often thought of as an aberration rather than the originator, but he was the one who actually said uh, Doctor Who, or the Doctor, is a mix of The Wizard of Oz and Father Christmas, which is basically what Moffat's doing now. So he knew right from the beginning. I think he had a clearer idea of what that character was than even the, most of the writers, and very nuanced as well. Like, we don't give him enough credit. I, I mean, I, I think one of the greatest sources of tension from the first Doctor stories is when he begins a line. He's like, please, God, get to the end of it. <laughs> uh, but outside of that, I mean, he does, he does these beautiful, quiet moments that, that just send shivers down your spine. I mean, he's farewell to Susan. He's, uh, even in the opening episode, you know, where Wanderers in Time and Space, you know, and he just gazes off into the distance. He does, and he does comedy so brilliantly. Like, he, he's a really underrated performer, I think. Actually, I was watching Time Meddler earlier today, and it's interesting because... 
people do accuse early Doctor Who of not having the emotion in it, which is you know the big thing that pushes it now. And yet that starts with a scene in which Vicky approaches him because Ian and Barbara have left, and she knows that he's upset. Mm. And it's a genuinely moving piece. And you realise that, especially through the Verity Lambert period, there was there was a lot of emotion in there, maybe in a slightly kind of stiff upper lip British manner of the time but it's it's definitely all the way through that and like you're saying too when he gets comedy scenes like when he's with butterworth in that in that episode you can see how much fun he's having he's just clearly in his element and really enjoying it that's what i think makes the um you know people might bag out the historicals a bit but i think that's what makes them because uh, a lot of the historicals have a real comedic element to it well let's not talk about the massacre <laughs> well, the Lol. title gives it away. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, a lot of them do have a really comedic element. And and I think also because in those particular ones they know effectively what the story is in a way because, because it is a historical rather than trying to work out – they've got a script, sure, but in terms of trying to work out how they're going to play it, they – they're better, better able to to hook themselves into the story, and it's it, they are having so much fun in those episodes. It's great. It's like the Romans is just a romp. Yeah. Really I love is. the Romans. It's, it's, a, it's oh, a farce. It's so hilarious. Good. Actually, that was another thing that struck me. Just watching that, thinking. Uh, the the sheer diversity, not just in the show, but even the way it's presented, the way it's filmed, like it, it can be very avant garde. When Ian and Barbara leave, it's a montage of still images. That it's so um, there's some just amazing bits of camera work and effects uh, in the Dalek Master Plan when the sort of transporter thing is happening, and it's it's people jumping up and down on a trampoline while superimposed <laughs> over. But it's incredible. This is just so weird. This is so weird in a way that now I don't think you could be as weird as the show was. And it's stuff, that, and you've got to remember too that at the time it was stuff that no one had ever seen. Like even if to us we go, it's just some people on a trampoline. No one had ever seen that on TV before. The way that that was being <laughs> no one presented. had ever been on a trampoline on TV before. That's <laughs> right, and it wouldn't happen again until Community many years later. <laughs> hey, I got one. That's okay. Now Community <laughs> reference every episode. I want to ask Alexandra because I mean you worked on his Swan Song, which is where the yeah, tenth part uh, was his the final. Last, the last three weeks that he was. He was there. And he was ill for, for He was very episodes. ill. He, was very, he had um, arteriosclerosis, I think that's what it was, hardening of the arteries, and that affected his brain as well as his body. Um, and he'd get very upset and very tetchy with people, but, I mean, he couldn't help it. It was part of the, the illness. Um, but I was very nervous about, about actually having to be in the studio while he was there and meeting him and that sort of thing. And... Um, I went to the dressing room and the first day I was there, it was my first day on the show, and I introduced myself to him and he sort of acknowledged me and that was it. And then I got a call from somebody saying, "Um, Bill wants you in the dressing room, there's something he can't find. And I thought, oh dear. Anyway, um, I walked in and he said, I can't find my hat. And um, I said, oh, well, let me have a look for it. So... I thought it's bound to be in here somewhere. And eventually it was, I found it sitting on the chair and he just said, oh, thanks, and I gave it to him. But, but the, the last day he was there was the day where he... he um, tran- what's the right word? Transmogrified? Is that the right word? Trans well, whatever well, it is. They call it regeneration. <laughs> it <laughs> yeah. didn't have a name yeah, at that point, do. actually. It's just a weird um, thing that happened. Yeah. <laughs> in, into, into, you know, Pat was there and Patrick Triton. And um, Patrick was very sensitive to towards 
Bill's feelings because we all knew that Bill was didn't want really didn't want to go, but he knew he had to, and and he was really sad about it and upset. Anyway, um, they both came onto the studio floor, and there were only a few of us there because they decided to keep as many people off the off the floor as possible. And um, the first thing, um, Bill had to lie down on the floor, and they photographed his head. And then they got Patrick to lie down in the same position, photographed his head, and then they mixed, you know, one over the other when they in afterwards. But but it was Patrick always had to make a little funny and so he was in the studio already, Bill walked in and um, Patrick said, Oh, who's who? <laughs> That, that's probably the first I, time someone made that joke. <laughs> yeah, it was the first time. Um, but it was everyone was very aware that it was a, a sensitive day and a difficult day. But Patrick handled it beautifully and was very, very friendly and kind towards Bill. So his illness had been though that noticeable. Oh, it had been yeah for quite a long time because um, he he wouldn't remember his lines. And to start with, he would kind of fudge it by saying, there's too much noise in the studio, I can't hear what's happening, I can't get my lines, could, could you stop that noise over there? So he did that quite a lot and, and used another, you know, a distraction. But then people began to realise that it was happening a lot. And towards the end, he had um, cue cards um, to help him remember. And, of course, that was embarrassing for him because he was a terribly professional actor. And talking about the comedy aspect of it, he, in fact, always wanted to do comedy and apparently was very good at it but never got much of a chance. And it was only until after he left Doctor Who and he did a pantomime um, where he, he played, I don't know what he best supposed you know, the widow twanky or something, I don't know what it was. Anyway, he absolutely adored it because he had so much comedy in it and that was a real joy for him mm. yeah, always, it's like what John was saying earlier you can see it in those scenes and those stories in Doctor Who where he got to play a more comedic sort of role yes. he really did really get into it he's in his it. element yeah. 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 yeah like he's great in the Romans running around like with somebody comes up to him and is hissing at him like the other conspirator because he's been mistaken he's impersonating this musician who's part of a plot to assassinate the emperor and the guy who's conspiring with the musician comes up to him and goes psst and he's like, hmm, who's that hissing at me? <laughs> and then when he comes back later on, he's no, oh, it's our hissing friend again. <laughs> and his timing is so great. He's clearly enjoying it so much. And it's hilarious. It's so much fun. During the break, we have had many people adding comments and questions into the Daypol TARDIS. We're going to very quickly try and go through some of those now. I believe, Petra, you have the first one for us there. This is for Alexandra. If you were designing cyber costumes now... What would you use now that the BBC is less cheap? <laughs> Am I going to be doing something, a new one, with all the other ones behind me, or am I starting from scratch? Starting from scratch, like brand new. Oh, You've got help. the script come in saying... <laughs> <laughs> You've got a script someone saying, they're a lot like the Cybermen, but they're not the Cybermen. <laughs> Make them look different, please. I'd probably have to watch Star Wars or something... <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I honestly don't know. I really do not know. And I hope it would never, ever happen. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, yes. This is a less quick one. Are you going to mention Hartnell and his old-fashioned attitudes to people of diverse backgrounds? <laughs> uh, 
About Time makes the point in the chase that only Hartnell could go to Africa and only encounter white people. Now, I actually did, I did a little bit of research on this. Hartnell is notorious for, for being... Well, people say he's racist, people say he's homophobic, people say he was, he was misogynistic. I actually couldn't find any first-hand accounts right. of that. And I couldn't work out whether it was he was a gentleman of the time, if it was just a, a thing that had come up around him, if it was true. Alexandra, did you work with William Hartnell? <laughs> did, wow. did you have any idea in, into, into Hartnell's po- political Not in the few minutes that I spent with him, <laughs> no. When um, you were looking for his hat, he didn't say anything. <laughs> <for his> hat. <laughs> Although he might have noticed my Northern Irish accent and decided maybe it was not safe to talk no. to him. <laughs> Oh um, no, honestly, I, I really don't know. But as you said, a gentleman of the times, I think maybe a lot of those things just weren't weren't discussed in a lot of places. So maybe in the in the sort of maybe people did at home or something. I, I mean, I really don't know. But but he he, I, as far as I know, there wasn't any. This is my concern. We may have have attributed this to him, mm. and perhaps it isn't fair. But I mean, I, I genuinely could not find first hand account. Well, really you know, there's a lot up. of argument to be made that the program itself and a lot of the ways in which television were made at the time were perhaps not what we would consider politically correct now. I mean, Doctor Who's very famous for even well into the 70s casting white actors as non-white roles and yeah. having them either black up or yeah. or wear you know accoutrements on their face to make them look different. And it's you know it's not something that we would find acceptable now. No. So uh, you know, it, it might just be that he's part of that sort of tradition. Which is a tradition that's thankfully behind us, but um, yeah, not much we can do about it now. Did you have some other quick questions? Uh, I do have another quick question, um, which we'll, we'll get everybody uh, who's up here to answer. What is your favourite William Hartnell monster, excluding Daleks and Cybermen? Um, and they've they've given some suggestions. Perhaps the the Vord or the Sensorites, the Sand Beast in the Rescue, <laughs> Sandy, poor old Sandy. Uh, so what, what do people like from the era? What sort of things are memorable? Monsters? It does say monsters, yeah. So in terms of anything alien? Yeah, I'd yeah, count yeah, that. Why not? I like the mechanoids and the chumblies. See, I was going to say mechanoids. <laughs> he mocked me before for my mechanoid loving. I like the mechanoids. I love the mechanoids, and I, I'm still, I would so bring them back. I think the mechanoids would be brilliant in the new series because they're huge and frightening, and the voice is brilliant. They I, have this right. terrifying, meaningless. I grant voice. you those things, but the thing that I find weird about the mechanoids is that they're robots designed to build a city for people to live in, and yet they look themselves like some sort of biodome that you would live in in the future. I mean, then the reason they didn't use them again is because they didn't fit through doors. Yeah, <laughs> they were very big. They yeah, were very big. But no, I'm, 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 yeah, I vote for the mechanoids as well. I'm going to go with the Zabi. Uh, <laughs> ser- seriously, there was a tone there, wasn't there? The audience yeah. were like, "Oh, of course he is." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mentioning the Zabi, good one. Uh, no, much for much the same reason. I like Keys of Marinus because they introduce all these different races and they all have this. All the st- it's something watchable. I'm not saying the show is what that story is watchable in any way, but I love the ambition. It's no, true. That's fair. That's it's got fair some point. cool stuff. The Vo- I actually think the Void costumes are really weird and great. Um, but I, I actually, I probably would go with Keys of Marinus. But I really like, I like the brains in Morphoton. Yeah, so you seen brains it, in jars. Brains yeah. in jars, but with but with yeah, eyes on yeah. stalks. Those, those, and when those she smashes good. their little control thing, they deflate like footballs. It's really creepy and gross. 
I thought that was brilliant. You know that they're, they're, they're meant to smash, and um, they only they didn't have a budget to have more than one of each jar, so the jars had to smash on impact. And I think is it Barbara who's hitting yeah, them? Yes, Barbara. And apparently the first one she hit it didn't break, but they, they couldn't stop. So the thing deflates even though it's been lightly tapped <laughs> on the outside of the. That's more oh, or less I can't what cope. Yeah. But you know, it's it, fictionally it makes sense. She smashes the device that's attached to them and just keeps hitting things because you know it's Jacqueline Hill. She knows she's onto it. She's like, oh, I didn't smash. I'll just make it look like I'm breaking things. She's awesome. Yeah. She's such a good actor. Yeah, kudos to the rest of the cast of the era. They're so good. And Alexandra, I assume you never watched the show, but did you have a favourite <laughs> monster? You're absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did see the last couple of minutes before the news came on. <laughs> But honestly, I, I really I don't remember. You, you did a whole bunch of stories, though, didn't you? And I'm trying to remember on the list because there were I think you did two Dalek stories and you did two Cybermen. Y- yes, but yeah, I, no, I did the Underwater Menace. Oh wow! The Fish People. Those, <laughs> those are, those are, are great. You, are possibly. you proud of the Fish People? <laughs> um, <laughs> don't, I don't don't talk. To, I love those. Fish they look people. quite good when when there's an artist's impression of them on the front of cover of a book. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll just pass on that. (laughs) Okay. And I think there was one more question. Yes. Would it work to provide us a viewing list each month, a la Oprah's Book Club? So so does Splendid Chaps need to have its own Oprah's Book Club? I'm thinking yes. Yes. Okay. Well, we can put that on the website. So we can give you all homework to do before the... For the podcast tra- that comes with homework. Yeah. It's <laughs> just going to be all the episodes, isn't it? Yeah. Just watch all of them. <laughs> yeah, watch yeah. all of them. Well, because um, our theme for next month will be uh, evil. Evil. The notion of evil in Doctor Who, because mm. it's in Patrick Troughton's time that he says the universe... Yeah, he starts describing things really as evil, and that it's his job to fight them, must them be essentially. But yeah, we'll have a little reading list so people can... Yeah. Yeah. So, yes, yeah. the answer to that is yes, we will. <laughs> the podcast that needs homework. That's just absurd. <laughs> How great is that? <laughs> um, um, and speaking of themes, so our theme for this month was authority. Authority, yes. We've, we've heard how the authority of the BBC worked with Alexandra and how you know things would just happen and you'd find yourself designing the Cybermen. Um, and we wanted to talk about authority in the show itself. And there was a comment that came through on Facebook from Lucas. I think the two extremes on this topic are the fourth Doctor's do I have the right speech from Genesis of the Daleks, in which he asks whether he has the right to basically perform genocide on the one hand, and the tenth Doctor's Time Lord Victorious speech from Waters of Mars on the other, which is the speech where the Doctor basically says that there are no rules and he can do everything he wants. The seventh Doctor's elaborate traps really were another example of him setting himself up as the highest authority, even though those relied on his opponents essentially sentencing themselves by going for the bait he would lay out. And I guess we're going to ask about the Doctor as an authority figure or the show as an authority figure. I mean, is, is he an authority figure? Is he someone we should be following or not? Well, he's not supposed to be at the beginning, as you say. You know, going right back to the start, he's this crazy old man who is uh, kidnapping authority figures. And (laughs) maybe that rubbed off on him. But you get to the point of, um, you know, war machines and you have this incredibly heroic shot of him, of the soldiers rushing away as he stands his ground. And suddenly, you know, over the course of three years, he has morphed into this authority figure. And yet at the same time, they start painting him as this rebel. And so it's not, and especially when you get to the uh, the third Doctor's era, you know, everyone thinks of him as this big authority figure, but he's been punished by the Time Lords. He's constantly fighting with Unit, and I think during that period in particular, he's he's the anti-authority figure. He's fighting the authority figures, so he's it's not a natural fit for him. 
Well, again, on the Facebook page, Richard wrote in to mention the third doctor's withering put-down of any number of witless pal-mal bureaucrats in that period, to which Lucas said, though he does seem to drink sherry with as many of them as well. <laughs> <laughs> Any I excuse mean, for a sherry? It is a confusing figure, I think. Nerida, did you...? Uh, well, just going back to the uh, back to our man of today, um, the I found him to be quite a disruptive um, figure in terms of... There are so many situations where he'd turn up and... and uh, Spruik Revolution or the Companions of Spruik Revolution and... And, um, and so. then leave, though. Like, he yeah, doesn't, no, that's he doesn't it. It's just, just like come in, create chaos, go. Yeah, in the Tenth so. Planet, he shows up claiming he knows what's going to happen, which implies that he's just deliberately putting his companions into peril for no reason. Well, there's also that the whole thing about um, the rules of time. You know, the, oh, yeah. You can't rewrite anything which unless a, you can. Which is one of my, that's one of my favourite Hartnell stories we haven't even mentioned, the Aztecs. And um, it's quite extraordinary because, yeah, he comes across as an authority on time travel because he obviously, even though we don't know really who he is at the time, he has said that he's from this advanced civilization from somewhere else in the future and that uh, he's implied by that stage that he invented or at least worked on the building of the TARDIS, so he, he sort of should know about time travel, which makes it increasingly implausible that he doesn't know how it works. But, but he, yeah, he's, he's the one who says you cannot rewrite history and insists that that's not cool. You can't do it. And, and for like a, at least a couple of years, every time they go back in history, he's like, no, you mustn't do it. And then in the Romans, Vicky suggests <laughs> to him that it's his fault that Rome has burned down. And he goes, no, no, no. And then he thinks about it and goes... Well, perhaps it's my fault. <laughs> Gets all excited and has a little <laughs> chuckle to himself. So it's like, it's like the, the rules of time are this thing that he's been led to believe is an authority that, that he cannot break. And then as soon as it's sort of demonstrated to him that maybe he can, he gets all very giddy and excited like a little boy. It's, ex- it's great. The show does have a problem with that generally, though, doesn't it? Which, I mean, admittedly, any time travel drama is going to have yes. a slight degree of concern. So you, in recent years, the fixed point in time, which seems to be a randomly appearing and disappearing yes. concept, uh, down to the most obvious one being, I can never see Amy again because I can never go back to that point in time. Well, why not a year later? I can never go back to that point. <laughs> why not go to Boston? She could take a train. I can never go back to that <laughs> point in time. Yeah, it's like... There are, you, you have a time machine, dude. I don't know. Yeah, did, did no one tell you this? Yeah. I do find it interesting uh, over the course of the show how many times uh, the Time Lords make him Lord President. And they seem to do it with the same fervour that Leela falls in love. She's like, I'm sorry, I'm in love with, let's say, that guy. <laughs> and they're like, we need a new leader. Um, you, the, the vagrant thief we keep putting on trial for murder. <laughs> Are you free at all? It's, I've, I've never quite understood why It'd be a bit like Australia saying, Julian Assange, you should be our prime minister. <laughs> the thief bit reminded me that uh, certainly as a kid, I noticed there was a... a a difference between English science fiction and American science fiction, which was that basically it's stolen spaceships. Like, English science fiction is all about people who have no right to be in control of the <laughs> ship they're on. Yeah. Either, like Doctor Who, where it was revealed he'd nicked the TARDIS. Blake Seven, they nicked their spaceship. Red Dwarf, they're clearly not meant to be in charge of that. Uh, <laughs> Zephod Beeblebrock stole the Heart of Glass. Um, it's, it's Heart of Glass. Ha- ha- no, Heart of Glass. That was the Blondie-themed spaceship. <laughs> <that> he- <laughs> but I thought it was really interesting. In English, obviously, we're, we're obsessed with this idea of these strange uh, counter culture figures renegades and it's like is that because they wanted to 
be them. I mean, is it is it? It's just funny that America wants these moral integrity, you know. Whereas the English are just going, "No, that dude nicked a thing and wears a scarf." It's, they're vaguely embarrassed by being an empire, I think, and so all of their art is like at that point on. It's like, no, we weren't an empire. We we like the the you know the rebels. That's oh. us. Oh, embarrassment then. That's an interesting. That is That's a theory I've been developing for about ten seconds. Now, it's good though. It's good. Yeah. It sounded quite convincing, and mm. you said it with fervor. Well, this, and it, it's interesting the way that the um, yeah. the notion of authority has evolved over the years. Because if you look at more recent episodes, uh, where the Doctor really relies on his reputation up until well, even fairly recently, when everyone's supposed to have forgotten who he is, he still you know does come out with those lines sometimes. We, when he talks to people, it's like, "Don't you know who I am? Like I've been doing this for a long time." don't you realise you're not going to win? Like when he's at Stonehenge and he basically says that to all the aliens there and they're all like, oh, yeah. Yeah, we remember this bit. <laughs> <laughs> but there is always a strong tradition of him coming in as, and I'm also going to say, go back to, to some of the previous quotes, almost like as the white guy. Like he's coming in as, as this, you know, Kipling white man's burden nonsense kind of idea of, of like the empire. So storming in and going, no, pay attention to me. I'm an Englishman. I have a hat. And, <laughs> and it actually makes the episodes quite fun when people don't, like in the Tumara stories, in which in both he's dismissed. In Snake Dance, he runs in going, no, this terrible thing's going to happen. They're going, oh, well, we'll cancel everything. Like, oh, really? Goes, no, lock him up. And he gets, he gets locked up for being a crazy guy. And I kind of wonder, when a woman finally plays the lead role, do you think she'll still be able to have that role? Or will the show be finding itself more and more trying to justify, like, will she be able to just storm in and take control of it? Or will the show kind of nervously try and have a waving around much more psychic paper than usual? Surely that's going to depend on how it's written and the actor. And the actor. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, well, that's down to the writers to get it right. Starting at the beginning, the, the, the female, just going to the female characters, were very um, screechy and, <laughs> and um, damsels in distress, you know. Something, something came along and, and they all start screaming. Although Barbara was a, a classic. Yeah, well, she was. But even then, Barbara has a hysterical fit in the middle of Doctor Who and an exciting adventure with the caveman, which is really odd. It's completely out of character. Not, but it's She sells it because she's an amazing actor. But, it, it seems but she's human and she's just been thrown into this situation. Wouldn't you potentially do the same thing? Yeah. Where but, you'd just like is, have a bit of a meltdown, But really? it would make more sense to me if Ian had done that. Because, <laughs> because Ian spends most of that episode being wrong. Like he just keeps being wrong. And that's what I was also quite fascinated because you think of early Doctor as being quite sexist. And yet uh, I noticed that the female characters keep being right while the male characters, not the Doctor, because I guess he's being given the special he must be right card mm. most, most of the time. But Stephen is often wrong, like in the Time Meddler. Um, and it's actually at one point where, where Vicky, I think, says to some Vikings or, or to the, I can't remember, the, the locals, she's like, oh, for God's sake, just make up your mind. Do whatever you're doing. Either let us go or kill us or whatever, but I'm <laughs> bored. You know, and, yes. <laughs> yeah. and she is such a great, and she's always right. Barbara is, is often right. Susan's an odd character because they seem to never quite know how old she is in each episode mm. they're writing. Like sometimes she's obviously 10 and sometimes she's 16. and. Yep. But, um, but I, was, I was so fascinated that the, the women came across a lot better than I would have expected from a show from the early 60s. I actually read something about the story about how the, the producer at the time of, um, who was it, at the time of Vicky leaving was all of, that, that his stories really are quite anti-youth um, and and the rising youth sub you know youth culture at yep. the time in the sixties and um, that 
Katarina dies in whichever oh, Dalek Master Plan. Master, yeah, Dalek Master Plan, like in the first episode. Basically, why you're not looking? Saying, well, what, yeah, first uh, was or second there episode? Someone? Oh, yeah. she's gone. Okay. Yeah, yeah but yeah. apparently that was supposed to be Vicky. Originally written as Vicky, but they they changed it because they thought that it would be too um, confronting for people who had become so attached to this character. But it was it, this producer actually well, wanted that, it that way. That producer, I think, the next one. It's because they're very glamorous. But you, you, I was noticing she has quite a strong under her producership. There's a strong sense of character and development and and, and connections between people. And then after that, they seem to be sort of shoving people out the door. And replacing them. And poor Dodo, who never really had much of an introduction, never really had a character, and she disappears two episodes into the War Machines. That's what I thought going the way of the Dodo meant, is you disappear in <laughs> right, yeah. episode two of the War Machines. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> well, the weird thing too is I came up with a theory, which, which makes a lot more sense of that, which is that the Doctor has killed her and buried her in a shallow grave. <laughs> and the weird thing is the end of War Machines makes a lot more sense. When they go, oh, Dodo's left her key here. Oh, I'm sure she's fine. You don't want to go and see her? No, I'm sure she's fine. <laughs> she, she won't want her clothes back or anything. No, no, get the TARDIS. Shut up. <laughs> I, I have now ruined that story for you. I do apologize. You will never unthink that when watching it. I'm horrified. <laughs> you have nightmares. <laughs> but it fits. Yeah. It does, it does, does fit a little. <laughs> Oh, dear. Uh, we're kind of running out of time. Is there anything else well, you wanted to the say? The worst part about that is it also explains why he's so worn out in the 10th planet. <laughs> he's just been on a time and space hopping murder spree and he's just gone, <laughs> I've had enough. He's like the Dexter of the Time Lords. <laughs> this old body's wearing out. Also, they won't be able to get my fingerprints. <laughs> He's thought of everything. <laughs> yes, we are running out of time, though. I mean, clearly we can't top the idea of deciding that the first Doctor was, in fact, a serial killer. Um, <laughs> so perhaps, um, we, can we have a round of applause for all of our guests so far? <laughs> Lee Zachariah, Meredith Haycock, Alexandra Tynan, Petra Elliott, over there. Uh, and John and myself, of course. Um, but it's not over. We are going to have our, um, our wonderful musical performance. Just, we, were, we were discussing it in the, uh, in the previous show what our sign-off was going to be. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and so we, we toyed with the idea of doing every episode we would, uh, we would do the last words of that doctor. But then we decided that the, f- the last words, when we eventually found out what they were, of the first doctor are so great... We're going to keep those. Yeah. And use them every time. To take us out, here's Geraldine Quinn with her song, Doctor Who's Assistant. And until next we meet, in the final words of the first Doctor, thank thank you. you. It's It's good. good. Keep Keep warm. warm. Oh, my love, you were amazing. You set my pulses racing. 63 to 84 Through almost six regenerations My sun, my moon, my Gallifrey You give the word and I'll obey Through shaking sets and underwear abrasions Oh, what does it take to be a Doctor Who's assistant? 
Don't tell me it's indecent to sleep two hearts against one. It must be such fun being, oh, as thoroughly useless as Doctor Who's assistant. Forgive me for being persistent, but a Time Lord stole the key to my heart. Joe Grant was a twit, Sarah Jane was bananas, and Leela looked like she'd walked into a door. I can make you forget those cheap slapper Romanas if you turn me into your time-space jumping whore. My darling, my angel, my space Casanova, with a glint in your eye and a frill on your shirt. You destroy Dalek plans and avert supernova while you patronize me. Stick your hand up my skirt. All the monsters and sets were no less than appalling, but they never conspired to stop me from falling in love with your Skill as cliffhanger survivor. Unlock my police box with your sonic screwdriver. <laughs> oh, admit that you long to be Doctor Who's assistant. He's so rocket and aging resistant. My time lord and master punch coordinates faster. Oh, a ride without equal to be a doctor who's assistant. Does it matter that he's non-existent? That time lord stole the key to my heart. Patrick Charlton, John Pertwee, and the lusty Tom Baker. With each face I developed a thundering ache for a man who augmented sartorial flair with jelly babies, recorders, and outrageous hair. Davison's smile full of sexual hunger Whether romping with Adric or with his arm in a cow Well, showing your age now Colin Baker, although 12 years or so younger Resurrected the horn, his namesake aroused Yes, I know, it's a love that will go unrequited And it's only the geeks who will laugh at this song of frustration was struck down and blighted by BBC casting so drastically wrong. A thousand hours of desire, the threatened eruption through quarries, blue screens, soaring to joy. I approached fever pitch, then a cruel interruption. I was left high and dry by Sylvester McCoy. The millennium came and Chris Eccleston saved me. Then Tennant arrived with a wink and a fringe. The new doctors revived my delight and then gave me an urge to shove rogues right up her minge. <laughs> Matt Smith and my ardour's still glowing ember. His miniature eyes lost in his massive face. <laughs> and don't doubt my allure. You do well to remember my lamington shit on those rubbish souffles. A succession of tarts keep attempting to steal him. Not to mention that yo-yo with tits river song. <laughs> I'm not sure of the background, but you all must agree that whatever it is, it's a little bit wrong. No writer could construct such an enthralling romance. Your strong hypnotic gaze imprisoned me in a trance. I've been woogly impaled on a Sontaran's lance. To be Doctor Who's assistant. You have been listening to Slay.
Splendid Chats. We'd like to thank this episode's Splendid Chats, Lee Zachariah, Nerida Haycock, and Alexander Tynan. Your hosts were Ben McKenzie and John Richards. The audio engineering and theme tune were created by the technical wizardry of David Ashton from Savile and Hall Studios. You can find us at SplendidChaps.com and as Splendid Chaps on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Petra Elliott. Until next time, thank you, it's good, keep warm.